on a nine-game win. I'm excited about the fact that our very own Jason Zelmer, listen to this, this past Sunday, drove his car up to Troy, ran a 5K, and my friends came in first place. Can we go up for Jason Zelmer? That's right. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, man, what a, what a, what a feat. I mean, that, that's incredible. I, he called me or we were texting back and forth afterwards. I was like, how do you feel, man? You know, just like, I will, because I will never have that feeling, ever. Like, I will never, ever run again in my entire life. You know, he brought me out to that marathon last year. Some of you guys know the story really, really bad. Um, greater than both of those things, though. Here's why I'm excited. Can I share with you? Last week, we saw Jesus' words to the disciples. And he said this. He said, pray always and do not give up. And you guys remember the Greek translation was better? Do not lose heart. In other words, in the words of Christ, what he did last week is he connected prayer with life. That somehow when we're praying and when we're in communion with him, that it gives us this amazing amount of life. So, I'm excited tonight because, because of the emails that, I, that I'm getting and the text messages that I'm getting and the prayer journey that has ensued in this congregation. And, and if you're just joining us tonight, we've started reading a book on this past Sunday by Andrew Murray, an old prayer classic called With Christ in the School of Prayer. What's happening here is many of us, listen, have gathered here tonight hungry. Many of us have gathered here tonight after coming off three or four of the best prayer days that you've ever had in your entire life. I know it because some of you have texted me that. Some of you guys have emailed me that. So to me, it's like, I I come here tonight, I'm like, what can happen in a room where a bunch of people are all of a sudden learning more about prayer and calling on Christ more and seeing this deep communion go? I, I, I don't know if we've ever seen that before because I don't know how many of us, despite the struggle, have really sought out the Lord in that way. So... I'm excited tonight to see what happens. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. If you're uh, here for the first time, we just want to tell you thank you for coming. It's an absolute blessing to uh, see you sitting in that very comfortable, we know, blue chair. Uh, you'll want to take those home after a while. Just, you, you'll want to make it like your sofa, you know? So just feel free. Go ahead and take it, right? The school loves us already, you know? Uh, we're journeying through the Gospel of Luke verse by verse. And we get to see another picture tonight in the scriptures of what it means to receive the kingdom, of what it means to make entrance into the kingdom. And tonight, context is key. And so, if you're not interested in character development, if you're not interested in context, if you're not interested in understanding what the story means in first century Jewish times, then you're going to miss the meaning. So stay with me. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Now, like we've said before, a parable is what? It's this story that has this, this meaning on the surface, but way deeper it has this greater meaning. And so Jesus is getting ready to tell this story that has many, la- many levels of meaning to this group of people who he defines as individuals who have looked to themselves for their own righteousness. In other words, they've, listen, they've connected themselves with righteousness. Which can we just begin this evening saying that any time that you disconnect Christ from righteousness and place yourself in that place, that you've missed not just a piece of the scriptures, you've missed the entire gospel. So he's telling this, listen, to a group of people who are struggling with this, which I love too because 
He's not like gathered the disciples and been like, look at those punks over there. Like those guys, they struggle with this and we need to talk about them in our own... No, 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 no. He's going to talk right at them. He's going to talk right to them, which gives us another way of seeing in Scripture that when we have issues with people and struggles with people, granted, we're not Christ. And so preaching to them may not always be the best answer, but that we should deal with them wholeheartedly and fully. And so Jesus is going to go right after these individuals who are connecting themselves and righteousness. Verse 10 says this, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now this, this story is going to be beautiful, so stay with me. Two men went up, okay, again, he's telling a story. Now, remember when we talked about Jerusalem? He uses the word up very poignantly here. Why? Because the temple is on, what do they call it nowadays? The temple what? Mounts. It's on a mountain or a, some, type, some type of hill, right? Like it's up. And you guys will remember, in the last days of Jesus, he goes through the Mount of Olives on a donkey, which would have been a horrendous ride, and he goes up to the temple to pray. So what I love about this is this just shows that Jesus, when he tells a parable, he gets all of the details perfectly correct. Two men wouldn't go down to the temple. They wouldn't go sideways to the temple. They would go up to the temple to pray. A little character development next. He says there's two individuals. And in this story, two individuals who are on opposite ends of the spectrum. The first, a Pharisee. We've seen a lot of the Pharisees. A Pharisee we would consider the most pious. Now listen, if you lived in first century Jerusalem days, in first century Israel days, you would have seen the Pharisees not like you and I see them. You and I, 2,000 years later, we look back and we think the Pharisees are a bunch of arrogant punks, right? And it's not that they aren't. But if you lived in that day, we would have seen them completely different. We would have seen them as, as very pious individuals. To be pious is to be very loyal or to be very religious or to be very good at following through. So a Pharisee is someone who the entire culture is looking to for religious answers. And this is huge in the context of the story. Again, we have to detach ourselves from the way you and I see this passage. We look and we're like, we instantly see Pharisees and we get sick to our stomach. We're like, these guys are a bunch of wretched punks. But for a moment, can you stay with me and understand that a Pharisee in this day would have been seen as someone who's completely pious, religious, good in the culture. Are you guys with me? Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we have the most despicable. We go from the most pious to the most despicable. Imagine this. Someone in this room, one of our friends, in quotation marks, taxes us because it's his job 80% or so of what we make. I understand gas prices are naughty these days, but can you understand someone taxing you 80% and that was connected to an individual? Uh, could you go through your mind a little bit of like what you would feel about that person, Right? It's like duct tape, duct tape them to a wall, get out my nine iron, and we'll have some fun. You know what I mean? Like, it's that type of, you know, it's that type of, of anger that would come, come in that heart of yours. I mean, it, it wouldn't be good, right? And so for this tax collector in this particular day, he was the most despicable. He was a guy that was looked down upon. He would tax Jews up to 80%. And listen, he was seen more than that as a traitor. Because who is he taxing in, in, in behalf of? The Romans. So he's taxing Jews on behalf of the Romans almost 80% of their income. So Jesus, in this beautiful story, sets up these two kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, the most despicable and the most pious, and they both go up to the temple to prayer. You guys with me? Verse 11 says this. 
the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, and the the Greek word there is theos, and this is important to understand, most of the time through the Gospel of Luke, uh, when God is mentioned, it is the word theos. And so, it's not that he's calling God like some general God, this is the theos God. I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Like most of us are like, what kind of prayer is that, you know? It's like, God, I'm pretty dang awesome, you know what I'm saying? Like I did all this, and I am all, and, and like that, that's you and I's first perspective. But hold on a second, if you're a Pharisee, that, that, that prayer is like completely, almost legitimate. It's like, God, thank you that I'm not like this guy who's taxing the Jews 80%. Thank you that I haven't turned out to be like this guy. Now clearly, his prayer, as we sit back, we would say it's completely arrogant, obviously. But in the moment, he's praying a prayer that in his reality, in his pharisaical mindset, he's fitting right in with with who he is in the culture. And so Jesus uses this as a way to show that the Pharisees have lived and learned in this reality that is completely apart from Christ. Listen, despite Jesus attacking the pharisaical mindset, that's what he keeps doing. He keeps coming to the Pharisees and saying, you guys are morons. I am the kingdom here and now. It's right in front of you. You can leave all of your pious living and turn to me in the person and work of Jesus. But that's the reality that they're not getting. Now for me, the prayer makes a shift. He goes from thanking God that he's not evil to I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all of that, of all that I get. Earlier in Luke, we saw that they even gave a tenth of their spices, right? So imagine like cutting up your like hamburger salt, you know, and saying, here, Jesus, you know, what, what do you want to do with this, right? Like they were that meticulous. Fasting twice a week, as a Jew, you were, only, you were only called to fast one time a year on the Day of Atonement. So to fast twice a week goes above and beyond. So imagine yourself now praying a prayer to God and saying, God, here is all the good things that I've done. What do you think about me now? Like so his prayer goes from this, God, thank you that I'm not like this guy, to God, but, and, and I do this. And I do that. And it's like this moment where in the story, the Pharisee is thinking that Jesus is going to like give him a pound and blow it up or something. You know, it's like, here I am, just great, in good condition. The Pharisee connects his own righteousness with somehow getting him to the person and work of Christ. It's easy for us to sit back and um, look at the Pharisees as though they're completely prideful. But my friends... I wouldn't be too hasty in judging them before we look at our own prayer life. Some of you guys have been challenged in the last week as you begin to pray and really think about the way God is changing your heart. Can you see before we started this journey on how some of you were praying the same arrogant prayer? It really wasn't prayer. It was a prayer to yourself, about yourself, for yourself. The prayer wasn't about the glorification of God. The prayer wasn't about seeking His communion. The prayer wasn't about... And so before we sit back and judge the Pharisees, let's, let's, let us not be too hasty before we look at our own prayer life and say, you know what, like, yeah, like, there's been many days that I've been right here. Now, if you're listening to this story, first century Jew, what you would have been hearing is, yeah, like that prayer is legit. That, that's what you would have been thinking. You'd have been like, that Pharisee, that's right on. I mean, he's good and he's doing good stuff. And so if you were listening to this, in your mind, you're thinking, yeah, 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 Jesus is about to give the Pharisees some props. Like, this, this, is, exactly, this is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Problem is, 
the story goes on. Verse uh, 12, or verse 13 says this. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, did you notice that when the Pharisee prayed, he what? He stood what? Up in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking about prayer. And he says, do not pray like the hypocrites who go to the synagogues and stand up and pray. It's like this image of confidence, but it's false confidence. The tax collector, this most despicable individual, he won't stand. He stands at a distance, which gives us this image that the Pharisee is almost like come into the temple and stood at the most central spot. He's standing at a distance. He won't look up to heaven and he goes Tarzan on everybody. You know what I mean? He starts beating his, beating his breast, beating his chest. And what does he say? God, I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. We go from very pious Pharisee, probably hands bowed or however they prayed, speaking very articulately, praying very properly, to on the other side, completely undignified. To on the, on the other side, a man who is just like, you know what? I have recognized my sin so much so that I'm going to do an ancient Jewish way of being mournful. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Two very distinct prayers. Can we agree? The actual Greek there of uh, the word mercy is a Greek word that's called hiloskama. And this word literally means, listen to this, it literally means to be atoned for. Or to be covered. So is it possible that in this parable, Jesus is even giving allusion to what he will do as he atones the sins of all the mankind. As he dies and covers our sins with his blood, that he would even use an, a word here that would mean that in this parable. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So we have two individuals, the most pious and the most despicable. One guy who's very proper, who the culture would have seen as this is a very good prayer. And on this side we have a guy who the culture would have been, would have been like, like put that guy in the back of the bus. You know what I mean? Like get this guy away from us. He is, this is, this is grotesque. Like what this guy is doing, it's so undignified. Jesus explains in verse 14 what he was going for the whole time. I tell you that this man, talking about the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This man goes home justified. This man goes home unjustified, if that's the right word. So if you're in the crowd, it's like all of a sudden you've had this this little switch. You're expecting Jesus to praise the Pharisee. In fact, you've been expecting that the whole time. And he keeps butting heads of the Pharisees. And all of a sudden, what does he do? He says, this guy, the undignified guy, the guy who wanted mercy, the guy who recognized he was a sinner, the guy who beat his breast and probably yelled at the top of his lungs, have mercy on me, this guy goes home. What's the word? Justified. Let's spend some time with that word, shall we? Especially because in Pauline theology, in other words, Paul's theology, who writes most of the New Testament, use this word, uh, use, uses this word called justification, that somehow we're justified by grace 
through faith. It is a huge theological word. This is the only time we see it in the entire Gospels. The only time. The only time we see this word justified. We see it again in Acts, which is Luke's second work. This is the only time that we see this word. So let's spend a moment here on what it means to be justified. First, by definition, it's a forensic word, right? Like CSI, right? It's, it's something to do with the courtroom. And it literally means to vindicate or to acquit. The word is the opposite of condemnation. To justify is the opposite of condemning. So in action, what Jesus did is he condemned the act and the heart of the Pharisee and he justified the act and the heart of, a, of the tax collector. A little verse to help us. Titus chapter 3. Put this up, Andrew. Titus chapter 3 says this in uh, verse 3 verse, uh, through verse 7. says this, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 7, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This guy says, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all of that I get. I'm not like this guy. God, please justify me. Please give me what I deserve. Please give me eternal life. This guy says, I'm righteous because of what I do. And can you guys understand? This guy is only praying in his reality, and that's the problem. Jesus has been constantly teaching that what you think is reality is shifting. What you understand to be reality has now become real through me. This guy, undignified, humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever is exalted will be humbled. This guy understands that he can do nothing. This guy understands, despite being the most despicable individual in a culture, he's like, I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm going to beat my breast in mourning, and I'm going to tell God that I need him, and I'm going to cry out for mercy, and I'm going to ask for grace because I know that the only way to the cross of Christ is by the grace that's given to him through faith in him. This guy goes home acquitted. This guy goes home not condemned. Scripture tells us that what? There's no condemnation through Jesus Christ. This guy, by the power of Jesus, goes home acquitted. Do you guys understand the power of that? He goes home not condemned. I'll put up the Corinthian scripture for me. Look at this. Look at this. I love this passage. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. This is already talking to these Pharisees. Wake up. Verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Don't you guys love this? Everyone would have been looking at this guy, saying, that's stupid. Like, Jesus, what are you talking about? How can you take a tax collector who's despicable in this culture and somehow say that he's justified? He will take the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Are you guys feeling this? Verse 29. So that no one may boast. 
before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Verse 31. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. This guy is not boasting in the Lord. I give a tenth of all I get. I fast twice a week, which is way more than the requirement. Come on, like give me, give me some props here. Like I have somehow earned something, haven't I? God, aren't I good enough? This guy has nothing to boast in. Because he knows that all that he has is Christ. All that he is can be found now in Jesus. Let me show you the danger of this. This might be a little bit scary, so bear with me. Um, this looks like a human living under here, and it actually is. Um, she was sitting in my office all day today, and literally it freaked out. Like, all of us would turn the corner, and we'd be like, wow, like, what, what is that, you know? Because we kind of positioned her, you know. I don't have a name for it. Any good ideas? Helga. Okay, little German accent. Um, when I was a kid, right, you go in the stores and you see these things all over the place and they're already freaky. You're like touching them when you're a kid. You're like, Mom, is this real? Like, they're not moving. How do they stay so still, you know? But a store uses mannequins as a way of taking something and putting it in a 3D version. In other words, a store has two options. They can either market their stuff by taking a picture, like we see in so many uh, department stores, and put a picture of the individual up there wearing the clothes, or they can take a mannequin and put mannequins all over the store. It's, it's a 3D way of saying, this is how our clothes will look on you. So come on in and buy them. Problem is, I don't know about you, but I've never looked like a mannequin. You know what I'm saying? So you're like, like what is that waistline? Is that like a 12, you know? Like, I've got much bigger, you know? It's dead. It has nothing, but a store uses it to say, like, this is the way you should look. This is the way you should be. This is the way you should dress. Hopefully not like this, right? Like, this is old, right? This came from St. Louis Christian College. The danger of the Pharisees and the danger for you and I is that the Pharisees were looked at in that day and age as a 3D version of what it was to be pious, of what it was to be religious, of what it was to be Christ-like. And so people were looking to these individuals who had completely conformed to something that was dead, to something that wasn't giving life, to something that ultimately Jesus said will condemn you. This over here justified. This over here condemnation. And because of their being deceived, They stood on the pedestal and culture was looking at them and they dragged so many others into this conformity. Like, this is the way we should be. This is the way we should look. And when you go over to them, and if you were to go into the soul of the Pharisee, it's like plastic. It's dead. My friends, how many of us are still communicating works-based righteousness? How many of us are still showing by our lifestyle that somehow we can earn something? What we're doing by doing that, what we're doing as a church by communicating that it can happen anywhere apart from Christ, is we're putting a fake facade, just a 3D, heartless version of the gospel before people, and that will lead to condemnation every single time. It looks good, kind of, you know? You're like, oh yeah, Helga, 
Like, what kind of lipstick is that? You know, like, I haven't seen that for many years. But as you get closer, listen, as you get closer, you know that it's hollow. Friends, we must be on guard against this arrogance that somehow we ourselves can become righteous by what we ourselves can do. Our prayer life becomes I am nothing. Yesterday in your lesson by Andrew Murray, you would have read, go to your closet and tell him how dirty you are and how much you need him. There's a big difference in that prayer life and the prayer life of the Pharisee. Scripture tells us, do not conform any longer to the pattern pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I, you, desire to be a part of a movement, my friends, that is not conforming to anything, especially that when it's dead, may we be a church community that is conforming to the heart, the will, the way of Christ Jesus. And His way is, I am the only way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So leave your works-based idea of righteousness behind and come to me. Beat your breast, undignified, stand before culture and say, we need you. Thankfully, he's not done. Verse 15 says this. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. Right? So get the image. Uh, This is the only gospel, by the way, that that brings in the word babies, which I like. Matthew and Mark both say infants or children. I like this because it kind of escalates the point here. What Jesus is saying to the disciples is, like, bring them to me. The babies start coming to Christ, and when it's a baby, I don't know if you've ever held a baby, they can't move by themselves, okay? So they're being bought by their parents to Jesus, and the disciples are like, whoa, 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 whoa. You, You know who you're working with here, like, Savior of the universe, see bass, you know? Like, step away from the Savior, you know? That's what they're doing, right? They're, hey, take it easy. But it's not just because this mob has been created, because it was. Uh, there's a revival going on right now in Florida. I don't know too much about it. Jason Jacobs was telling me about it. There's a revival going down in Florida, and again, I don't know anything about it. There's been 14 resurrections attributed to it. You know, I, I, again, I haven't read much about it. But what I do know is this, is that the guy who's the leader of this movement has become like this icon. And so pastors are like just craving to be prayed over by this guy. And so they're just coming in droves. Listen, people are faking that they're pastors to be prayed over by this guy. Anytime there's kind of this like healer, good prophet, strong teacher, whatever guy, people flock to. And so as Jesus' reputation grows, I guarantee you that this scene wasn't like a movie theater line. You know what I mean? Like Jesus is standing there, the great healer, the great prophet, and people are bringing their babies, and it's like, here, will you please touch my baby, all right? This is not an argument for infant baptism, and we can talk about that in a whole other teaching, all right? But what it is an argument for is that Jesus says these children have worth. You see, the disciples didn't just say no dice because of the mob. They were saying no dice because in this culture, in this day and age, children were not significant. Children were looked down upon. They were, it's not like they were outcasts, but they were just the lowest of the low. They were kids. They can't contribute anything. They can't make that money, you know, for the family. They can't bring in anything. And Jesus takes what they think the reality is and says, bring them to me. Bring them. Bring them. I want to see them. I want to hold them. Can you imagine that moment? 
you're a disciple. You're trying to protect Jesus. In your mind, you're thinking that children have no worth. And here is the Savior of the universe who eventually will die on a cross and bleed, holding kids, touching kids, blessing kids. Do you get a little bit of an image that he loves children? Right? Do you get a little bit of a picture that Jesus is enjoying this moment? Oftentimes we just think of Jesus as a stoic character who has no emotion and has no feeling. Can you guys just agree with me for a moment? Can't you picture Jesus enjoying this moment? And again, like I don't want to paint some blonde hair, blue eyes smile on Jesus right now, but can't you see the, like the fully man, fully God part of this moment? Enjoying holding the kids, enjoying touching the kids, enjoying blessing the children. Look at this. But Jesus called the children to him in verse 16 and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And so if Luke's right in that he's talking to babies and about children who have to be brought, it means that this involves both the children and the parents. Bring them. Usher them to me. Disciples, do not hinder them. Because unless you receive the kingdom of God like this little child, you will not enter it. What what do kids have that he would say something like that? Instantly, what do we think of? What do we think of? What's that? Yeah, yeah, innocence, right? For sure. And and not like, and and I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Like oftentimes, I think we struggle when we see a three-year-old little girl and we see her smiling. I love my daughter Avery. And when she smiles, it like makes my heart melt. But here's the reality about her innocence is yes, she's naive to the world, but let me tell you, my little daughter is not innocent. And, and I say, you know, I say that jokingly, but on the other side, I say that very, very real. She's depraved. The insides of her are rotted. She's, she, without Christ, my little daughter is, is guilty, is done. And it's hard sometimes, right, to see, see little kids as that. It's like three-year-old, right? And the, and the, the psalmist in Psalm 51 says, I was sinful even at birth. Like, for those of us that are parents, you're like, amen, right? Like, you can see that developing and growing. But yes, innocence, innocent in the way that they're naive, right? My, my little daughter doesn't understand a lot of things about that world. So yes, innocence is one of those traits. What, what's another one that we often talk about? Childlike faith. Yeah, yeah, It's like this. If you say it, mom and dad, I believe it. Until they're what? Seven? You know what I mean? It's like, if you say it, I believe it. You just speak it, mom and dad, and it's true. If you say that that can of bubbles is actually empty, even though I can see that it's half full, and I know you just want to go inside, like, you know, I guess, I guess we'll go inside because it must be empty, right? Yeah, yeah. What I love about kids is they're excited. Ever notice that about a kid? Like some of us still are kids in that way, you know, but they're just excited, man. Like, they just want to grab life by the horns, you know, and just go after it. I love that. So I think there's that joy, that innocence, that childlike faith. Now, what Jesus never says in the Scriptures is that we're to be childish. There's a big difference between being childish and childlike. To receive the kingdom in a childlike way, and this is the trait that I think overarches them all, is to receive the kingdom with a great wonder with a great awe have you ever noticed when you walked into Chuck E. Cheese or Showbiz when you were a kid that place looked like it was like the St. Louis Dome you know what I mean I mean you walked in have you guys all been to Chuck E. Cheese yeah 
Okay, three of us? Seriously? Unbelievable. Like, you guys need to get out more, right? When I was a kid, Shelby's Pizza was a place to beat. Billy Bob, you know what I'm saying? I don't even remember the drummers. But it was, and you walked in, and you felt like you were in the, in the dome. I mean, the auditorium seemed big, the sound system, even though you go there now, it's like, what are those speakers, you know? I mean, it seemed huge. And I would walk in there, and I remember listening to the Beach Boys with my cousins when I was nine. We would always go to Chuck E. Cheese. I would just be like, wide-eyed. I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen, you know? There's a bear playing. Dear mother. There's a bear playing instruments, you know? And, like, my mom has some pictures of me in, uh, in Chuck E. Cheese or Showbiz, whatever. And my eyes are, like, the size of my face, you know? Just, it's that wonder. It's that awe. It's the awe that the tax collector had. You must really be God. You must really be Yahweh. Give me that. I want that. I don't want anything else. I don't care what anyone else tells me. What you say, what you speak, what you give, that's what I desire. Give me that. We've lost our sense of wonder, my friends. Last week, when I was vulnerable with you, I told you that I had become too careful in my prayer life. I confess to you that in my prayer life, that I've, that I've forgot about the promises of God often. And I always want to be, make sure that I'm right theologically in all these things. And in doing so, not that that thing's necessarily bad, in doing so, I've become too careful. And so, in a lot of ways, I've stopped believing and praying the promises of God. We can do this same thing when it just comes to the person of Christ. We become too careful. We become too dignified. We don't approach the throne of Christ with just this awe, open wide wonder of what you say. I believe it. I want to go for it. I want to be changed by you. But the call isn't just to kids or to be childlike. If parents are carrying their kids, what is he telling the parents in the scripture? He's saying, bring them. Bring them to me. Show them me. Teach them about me. Make sure that me is always on your lips. Make sure that me, the person of Christ, is always what you're talking about around your kids. Friends, we have conformed in the exact same way of the mannequin. We've conformed to a cultural way of raising our children. We've conformed to a cultural way of what it looks like to be good parents, to be godly parents, to even be Christian church parents. And we've said, you know what, ultimately, yeah, it's kind of part our responsibility as parents, despite Jesus saying, bring them to me. But, you know, ultimately the church will play a part and, and, you know, grandma and grandpa will play a part and we get to pawn them off on them for the weekend and all these other people will play a part. As long as I open my Jesus Storybook Bible once a week and we talk about the Scriptures, friends, he says, bring them to me. Listen, do not hinder them. I was thinking about this passage last night as I was uh, holding Avery on my lap and her new thing is, Daddy lap? You know, she loves to sit on Daddy's lap. And I began to pray. And the prayer that came out was, God, please do not let me be a hindrance to this little girl hearing the gospel of Christ. And I started to cry. And she like looked up at me. And she was like doing the daddy are you okay thing. 
And I was like, you know, I just, I just held her and I just kept praying, God, do not let me be a hindrance to this little girl hearing about the gospel. Friends, you as a parent, you as a future parent in this room, some of you college kids are like, I'll never be a parent. That's what I said too. You know what I mean? You're 18. You'll wake up, okay? Most of you will be parents. And as a parent, scripturally over and over and over, the responsibility of showing, revealing Christ in your household is on Him through you. It's not on you, only He saves. You can't save any of your children. But what He says is, do not hinder them. Bring them to Me. Show them to Me. Teach them Me. Talk about Me. Worship with them when we talk about Me. All of those things are on the parent through the power of Jesus working through us. But many of us have, we're like, you know, in the posture. You know, I'm going to try to, Helga, right, Doug? You know, it's like pretty soon, yeah, but what about this way in like church, you know? What about this way? And we just need to, like, I'm not going to spank my kids, and I'm not, and we're not going to go there, right? But Scripture's clear, we can talk about that. And I'm not going to do this because of all this. And I'm just going to become this cultural American parent who thinks that it's everyone else's responsibility to teach my little kid about Jesus. And what we've become is, look, like, look at me, I'm a Helga, you know? Which is a God, you know, just a bad thing, right? I mean, this is just not a good thing. I'm dead. I've completely conformed to something that has no life. Jesus says what has life is me. Jesus says what has life is when church communities and a culture really grasp bringing the children to me and not hindering them. Don't let them hold back. Just bring them to me. And you keep showing them that it's not a works-based righteousness that will get them anything. That it's me. And that's why you need to bring them to me. And not just to the church. Because oftentimes when we come to church, in certain churchianity circles, we learn what? We learn that it's the good stuff that we do that makes us into the Christian that we are, instead of it's the Jesus in us that makes us the Christian that we are. And so he says, bring them to me. Bring those kids to me so that I can show them that I am the way, that I am the truth, and that I am the life. And so if you're a parent in here and you do not know Jesus, let me tell you something. Scripturally... Your kid's only hope is the person of Christ and your only hope is the person of Christ. And so if you're a parent here and you're not a believer, you're struggling with understanding the things of God, can we please journey with you? Can we please continue to reveal and show you Jesus so that you may better parent your households? The reality is, as many of us in here are parenting just like our prayer life, lacklusterly, lifeless, cultural just doing the parent thing, hoping that when they get five or six, they'll know better and they'll be able to go off to school and we can do the thing with them. That's not parenting. That's not pastoring your household fathers. That's not growing your women mothers in here to become uh, little girls who fear the Lord and understand that charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. What does it look like for a church when it comes to our prayer life, when it, be, when it comes to raising our children when it becomes portraying the gospel, what does it look like for a church to say this is lifeless? This conformity to this image that cultural and that the Pharisees put up, this is lifeless. It's hollow. It has nothing to it. What does it look like for a church to say, you know what, no, 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 no. Like this is what we need to conform to. 
This is what breathes life through the Holy Spirit as He speaks the truth into us. This has nothing for us. At first, when we walk in the store, it's somewhat luring. Oh, it's like, oh yeah, that, like that actually could look something like I should be wearing. And then as we get closer, we realize that it's death, condemnation, eternal separation from Jesus. Friends, can we get back to having an awe and a wonder of what Christ can do in our life? Have we forgotten the transformation, the new creation that happens through Jesus? Have we just become about the stuff and the rhythm and all the things that make us into a good American Christian that we've left Jesus out of that equation? As part of our prayer journey, there's an index card that's on your seat and a pen. It's around your seat. I just want to ask you to grab that. I'm going to go ahead and cover Scary Chick up, if that's okay. Go, go away. I think that a lot of times when we come to moments like this and we're, we're like sensing that we desire to change and that we want to not conform to the culture and be transforming in our parenting and our raising of our kids and our revealing the gospel... We come to these moments and we just walk out the door. We haven't prayed anything. We haven't thought about anything. Let me tell you this. What I've been learning so far through the journey is that He hears our prayers and that when we pray the promises of Christ, like he, it just creates this beautiful communion with us. So why wouldn't we pray for Him to change our hearts? Why wouldn't we take a couple minutes right now using that pen and that index card just to pray what you're feeling right now? What would it look like three days from now if that prayer that you prayed just now for God to do a work in you, for Him to change your perspective, for Him to show you the true reality that you're living in. What would that look like if that index card like, ended up in your Bible and three days later you're like, oh yeah, like I, I meant to pray that, but I've already forgotten. And all of a sudden this prayer for God to do a work in you just was coming off your lips. And so friends, as the band just comes up and begins to lead us, I just want to invite you guys to take a couple minutes. And whatever is on your heart right now, whatever He's stirring for us to leave this fake facade, 3D, lifeless image, just going to ask that you'll write that prayer down and just begin to pray it. Begin to allow that prayer to breathe life in you. Begin to conform to the person of Christ.